0: Welcome to
1: the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in cultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am incredibly pleased today to welcome Professor Thomas F. Thornton and Professor Madonna L. Moss to the show. Professor Thornton is Professor of Environment and Society at the University of Alaska Southeast. He is also the author of Being in Place Among the Tlingit. Professor Moss is Professor of Anthropology and Curator of Zoo Archaeology at the Museum of Natural and Cultural History at the University of Oregon. She is also the author of Northwest Coast, Archaeology as Deep History. Today, we are discussing their new book, Herring and People of the North Pacific, Sustaining a Keystone Species, which was published in 2021 by the University of Washington Press. Professor Thornton, Professor Moss, welcome to the show. Thank you, Thank you. Adam. Could you speak to the background of the book a little bit?
0: Yeah, I guess I can begin. Um, The background to the book was really a, I would classify it as a problem-based study that we were, um, I guess, invited to do, maybe indirectly by um, the Clinkett people, particularly of Sitka Sound, uh, Sitka Alaska, who had been struggling with uh, the management of herring fisheries in their... uh, territory, which we call Sitka Kwan. And uh, basically, they they have been harvesting herring eggs there for subsistence uses since we say time immemorial. Um, But at various times in the colonial history, if you want to call it that, there has been intensive fishing, first in what we call the reduction era, when herring was caught and reduced uh, to oil for feed and fertilizer and so forth and then uh in the contemporary era in what's called the sacro fishery which is essentially an export fishery of the the, the herring eggs when they're in the sack of roe so you have to kill the herring in order to extract that and that's been done very uh, intensively in recent years in sitka sound and they've been uh, very vocal uh, against it for the most part and uh, and in describing why they were against it they were saying things that were to me uh, you know very clear hypotheses about the decline of herring you know that the the extent of spawning has declined the uh, duration of spawning has declined the size of herring spawners has uh, been reduced and the quality of spawn uh, has also declined and so these these were things that I thought could be tested. And, uh, and maybe if we took a, a long-term view, what we sometimes call a historical ecological view, we could answer these questions and give a better perspective to management about just what's happened with herring. Because you have to understand that Alaska is a young state. Its management is fairly shallow. It only goes back to 1960, and that was really, you know, not even full management. It took a while to kind of gear up. And uh, what we would call the local and traditional knowledge uh, in Native communities, as well as non-Native communities, can stretch back much farther than that. Um, And so uh, but I invited Madonna and uh, her colleagues, uh, Virginia, Butler, and we had a couple of graduate students also on the project to help expand that long-term view even beyond uh, the consciousness uh, and memories of of living people. And so the project was called Herring Synthesis, and it was funded by um, the North Pacific Research Board. um, And uh, we carried out a regional study, so tried to touch on all the major uh, traditional herring gathering communities um, in Southeast Alaska. And that was started and was done between 2006 or 7 rather and about 2010 when uh, the final uh, draft was was published but I'll let uh, Madonna say a little bit more about about her origins in the project.
2: Thanks. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, I said that I'd started working in Southeast Alaska in 1978 and while that's true, it wasn't really until the mid-80s that I became more clearly aware of the importance of herring uh, to Tlingit fishers. And that's because in the course of my dissertation research, I was was using uh, fine screens to uh, sieve archaeological deposits. Um, And I I looked at eight different sites and people... um, in the communities where I worked, were really not very enthusiastic about archaeological research. They didn't want to see disturbance of archaeological sites. So my approach was to take very small samples and to analyze them intensively. And when people in the community of Angoon, where I worked, saw what I was doing with these soil samples and midden samples, it helped allay their concerns. They could see that I wasn't really collecting very many artifacts, but I was going through the food remains that is the shell and bone that are found in these archeological sites. And I put them over two millimeter mesh screens. And it was then that you start to see the small bones that aren't recovered in a typical excavation, or it wasn't typical at that time. So if you're just excavating with a trowel, you're not going to see herring bones. If you're just screening with eighth inch mesh, you're not necessarily going to recover many, many herring bones, but when you're taking bulk samples and you're recovering very and you're using very fine screens, that's when you start to see the herring bones. And so I was impressed by the herring bones that were present in the site and particularly there was one site uh, near Angoon that had mostly herring bones and that was somewhat of a surprise to me. And then over time I got more interested in understanding the importance of this forage fish which had been largely left out of archeological treatments, not just of Southeast Alaska, but of the Northwest coast more generally. Uh, So um, over the years, and in particular working in Sitka, um, you just get, you you learn from people that you're working with is that they they care about a lot of things about their culture and history, but they really do care a lot about herring. And it seemed to me that, Uh, It was important to use what archaeological collections we had to study the herring more intensively um, and not necessarily go out and dig uh, large portions of, of archaeological sites, but to work with the collections we had and to study herring bombs. And I can say more about that later.
1: What audience did you have in mind for this book?
0: I think uh, for me, part of the audience was click at people themselves, you know, uh, and, and trying to reflect back a lot of the things that I've been told uh, in the course of, of this Herring Synthesis project, as well as others who worked on the project and separately in in other contexts. Um, and to, to try to paint uh, a holistic integrated picture of of the role of herring in the marine socio-ecological system, if you will, because uh, we don't tend to think of it that way. We tend to think of of herring as resources, but that's not really the way that indigenous people have thought about herring. And we tend to think about Northwest Coast uh, peoples as, you know, complex uh, or high-level hunter-gatherer fishers. But but actually, when it comes to things like herring and, and, and clam, We've talked about clam gardens and other things these days. We recognize that there's a there's a significant degree of cultivation that goes on uh, to produce the the distribution and abundance of resources that we have in Southeast Alaska. And you know, to the extent that the manage managers of these resources are basically not aware of that, <laughs> they are also an audience for for this book because it's it's trying to present a different way of looking at herring a different way of valuing herring and also to tell another story about the development of Alaska uh, and of the North Pacific as a region in terms of its most important forage fish. and. Um, I don't know about you but i've always been captivated by those micro histories uh you know books with titles like uh, cod and salt (laughs) or whatever that are trying to tell the history of the world through a, a specific resource and um you know, when I read uh, cod, one of my reactions was, well, what did cod eat? Cod eat herring. So I <laughs> really, we should go one level down. And, and that's where the story begins. And I guess to write the real history of, 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 of our marine environments, we'd have to get down to the plankton level. Somebody's going to write the history of plankton. but. Uh, but but herring are just really important and and so the book is really a tight focus on indigenous cultures of southeast alaska in some ways but at another level it's trying to look at the north pacific as a region and and even compare hemispheres you know because we talk about atlantic herring and and some of the same problems we see in the pacific are are actually evident in the atlantic and you know during the little ice age so that much further and (laughs) And uh, so we need to learn from from these historical as- examples, but we also need to understand herring, I would say, in this anthropological context, which is, a, you know, the long durée, the long period of time that relationships have developed between people and herring and all the ways that they are culturally significant, not just as a food, you know, in terms of pounds, you know, consumed, but also as a, uh, a shared uh, resource that creates uh, conviviality—I call it in, in the book—but uh, and goodwill. You know, it's kind of a first fruit uh, in the spring, if you will. <clears throat> I say it's our Easter eggs because, after all, rabbits don't lay eggs, but, but herring do, uh, and they're, of course, very, very widely distributed, especially from Sitka Sound. Eighty-seven uh, percent of the of the eggs that are harvested are distributed, either exchanged or given away, most of them given away uh, by the harvesters who, who uh, gather them. So, you know, that's extraordinary in itself. And most people are not aware of this. You know, we have lots of books about salmon. We don't have that many about herring. We don't have any herring museums in Alaska. You know, there's just not a lot of attention paid to it. It's kind of taken for granted, but uh, not among indigenous people because they're, they've been out there fighting for herring really since the beginning of the 20th 20th century, when they began to be overfished commercially. So we thought that's an important story to tell.
2: Well, and I think that um, placing it within the larger North Pacific context and looking at um, Japan and um, Russia and... (sighs) Uh, looking at the relationships that people in that area have had with herring and how the over-exploitation of herring really started there earlier helps bring context to what happens in the Northeast Pacific along our Northwest coast. And I think um, in terms of audience, uh, one of the things that characterizes Tom's work, um, much of his work, is his ability to draw in um Native voices, uh klingit voices are very much present in this book. And so I know I felt really strongly that after we'd finished the herring synthesis pro- pro- project, i wanted I felt strongly that those voices need needed to be preserved for a larger audience. Not that many people are going to download a six hundred and fifty page PDF from the North Pacific research board, you know, and, and read it. But these voices are, are, are testimony to environmental change that has happened within people's lives. And they bring so much authority. Uh, and Tom's work has been characterized by this for a very long time. And so I felt strongly that they needed to be preserved in a book. Um, and so, you know, we, I don't know when we started talking about it, Tom, um, but the need to bring the book to publication um, that would have a wider audience. So we wanted more people to hear these voices. Um, And also I wanted the opportunity to incorporate the archaeological record because it does provide this long-term historical ecological record that is not duplicated anywhere else. And so I wanted to be able to share that uh, with a a larger audience as well. And I think that... um, you know, maybe, maybe parts of, of the archaeological record are kind of boring because they're so uh, place-based and you need, need to know a lot of uh, local names to really appreciate them. On the other hand, I felt like this book really did provide a synthesis in a way that we were not able to do in the herring synthesis project. I felt like we were more synthetic, more holistic. We brought things together in a more coherent, comprehensive way in this book. Um, and so I feel like it is the, you know, it, it, it better achieves the goal of, of herring synthesis.
1: Why
0: are herring important? So I'm just going to note that Madonna's letting me go first I'm not <laughs> I'm not stealing the, the stage after each one of these questions but uh, the one hint one answer to that is in the title you know the word keystone species and uh, uh, we use the terms foundation species in and cultural keystone species, because keystone species in biology is slightly different than in, in using the term cultural keystone species. But cultural keystone species just means it's it's very important within a cultural setting and is is a resource that about which there's a, not, a lot of knowledge. Um, there's typically a lot of ceremony. There's a lot of exchange. There's a, a plethora of linguistic terms, uh, often you know, very specific to the life cycle and habits of that uh, of that species um, that makes it important. And uh, uh, the word "foundation" is also a very good term because it simply means that that the rest of what you're talking about, in our case, the marine ecosystem, the food web, that's so important to so many creatures that we value in the Pacific Northwest, is is highly dependent as a foundation on on herring. And herring are are, are incredible. Um, Uh, converters of bioenergetics, if you will, you know, in eating the smallest critters, the the zooplankton and other critters and turning that into, you know, lots and lots of oily, uh, nutritious uh, flesh and bone and so forth for uh, critters higher up uh, the food web. And uh, so you know that's why they're important to protect, and and it's that's why it's important to have a lot of them. So uh, and, and sometimes people don't understand that because um, you say, oh, I see a lot of herring, you know, out there at this time, but but actually that's that's a, a symptom of maybe not understanding how much we've lost uh, historically. Something called shifting baseline syndrome, but. But anyway, that's uh, those are two reasons why they're important. They're they're a cultural keystone species, and they're biologically they're a, they're a foundation species. And then I think a third reason why they're very important is that they're. Uh, we use the term bellwether. Uh, they're really an indicator for, for the health of, of, our, of our marine systems, which is an indicator of the health of our coastal uh, economies, really, um, which are built on fish and shellfish and other, other uh, resources. So uh, we should be paying attention to them and maybe not treating them just like any other fish um, or any other resource.
2: Yeah, I don't have much to add to that because it was it was very comprehensive, Tom, uh, but I would say something along the lines of um, uh, they're so interconnected to so many different species that, you know, despite the focus and, and it might appear that we're focusing on a single fish and we are, but it's so interconnected to the whole marine system that it is the health of the whole system that we're concerned with. And it can all break down if the herring aren't protected.
1: And Professor Moss has already touched on this. Uh, could you talk about some of the people you worked with?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, that's the most fun thing about being a cultural anthropologist is you work with, uh, we work a lot with people and, and of course archeologists too. And I know McDonough does a lot of public and consultative archeology, span which is, is involves contemporary uh, groups of people and uh that's it's very very important and and the study was designed um to have a focus on all uh, all of the local and traditional knowledge and so a lot of it is indigenous knowledge but but not all of it um and so i might start by by emphasizing a couple of the surprises that uh, i ran into and one of them is uh, in in ketchikan which is a you know a city and a it 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 has a conservative i would say uh long-term resident non-native population in many ways uh you know they don't want want to be identified as conservationists and would be called names like that Uh, but they were extremely concerned about herring Uh, and a a lot of traditional and local knowledge uh, uh, about about herring that had been passed down through generations in some cases in in non-native families and and uh, and and a lot of um, so we say consulting about what's what's going on with herring between the native and non-native community especially long-term you know long-term residents of that area and what they'd seen and and so um, you know taking that community perspective and not just focusing in on a segment of the population, I think was, was very interesting to me. And, and so a lot of the people who you'd say might be right, right of Attila the Hun on the political spectrum are, uh, are really, are really upset about what's happened uh, to herring. You know, and some of them are fishermen who make their living on salmon and and have seen what's happened to salmon as a result of, of, of of herring being uh, overfished. So, you know, um, we met a, a wide range of people in, uh, in our discussions. And then, you know, we weren't necessarily just focused on, on elders. Um, so we were dealing with, with younger, younger people as well. Um, and, uh, Gender, gender-wise, there were many people, um, you know, on both uh, uh, both genders who were contributing knowledge. But I would say, um, you know, one of the most remarkable people we talked to is uh, Dr. Walter Sobolov, who um, is considered uh, kind of revered statewide as a as a cultural leader and lived to be, I think, 101 years old. and And we interviewed him for this project, um, uh, uh, and. Uh, and it was very interesting because he was actually employed in Angoon, uh, a little community in central Southeast Alaska, at the first ever herring reduction plant, uh, which was on Killis New Island. And he was working there when he was, um, you know, in his teens, which was in the, in the you know, prior to 1920. And, uh, and he was, uh, we were asking him, you know, when they were fishing herring commercially, uh, how soon did it take before they had to really go very far from where they had originally gotten the herring? You know, in other words, what, at what point did the local supply become unsustainable? And he was able to tell us firsthand, because this wasn't recorded elsewhere, that already by the time he was working there, you know, in say, 1920s, uh, he uh, they had shifted way down to the end of Admiralty Island, um, which is, you know, 50 60 70 miles away to fish because they they kind of fished out that area and that was really the first plant uh in southeast alaska and then after world war one you had uh, you had a bunch of other plants so i think it went up to almost 20 that were in the region fishing uh, uh you know industrially for herring and taking taking large quantities so uh but, you know, despite all of that, he was actually optimistic about uh, herring in the future because he, uh, he thought if we, if we understood their value and we took care of them, uh, as it seemed like we were starting to do with studies like this, he said, um, that, that they will come back because they are very, very resilient. Um, and they do come back, uh, but it, sometimes it takes a long time uh, and, and you have to have that proper habitat for them to return. Um, so so that was a very, uh, a very interesting interview there because it really crystallized what traditional knowledge could tell you and, and longevity in a place could tell you that just wasn't available in the, in the historical records.
2: I would just add that I, I also found it's really compelling to hear people in both Ketchikan and Sitka talk about how when the pulp mills closed down, uh, how water quality improved. I mean, it took time, but there were descriptions. There's descriptions in the book of the quality of the water um, in Ketchikan and Sitka, and just being filled with contaminants. And I think that if you live in Southeast Alaska, you have this sense of this pristine area um, with the rain and the mountains and the forests, uh, and and, and these localized sources of pollution were really damaging to the herring and hearing people talk about that and appreciating what, it, what it's meant that the pulp mills have closed down is um, also very compelling. Well, there are a lot of stories that are, we hope that they're compelling to our readers. <laughs> um, but those are the kinds of things that, you know, first person testimony of how change has happened in the 20th century. Um, I think that these voices are really a strength of the book. Or one of the strengths of the book.
1: As a reader, I can assure you, the stories are extremely compelling.
2: Oh, that's nice to hear. (laughs) Thanks, Adam.
1: In the introduction, you list four tragedies, however. The tragedy of the commons, the tragedy of commodification, the tragedy of monoculture, and the tragedy of what you call conviviality. Could you talk about these and how they fit in with current fishing practices and policies? Yeah, I can
0: I can start on that. That's uh, certainly a big topic, but uh, a, a lot of people see fisheries management as as one of really dealing with the tragedy of the commons in the sense that if you don't. You know, have territories at sea, and you have lots of people that can jump in there and and fish. Um, you end up with this this uh, this case of it's it's in no one's interest to not take some more, uh, if the next person just will come and vacuum them up or or fish them out. Uh, and so that you know, in a nutshell, as Garrett Hardin identified back in the '60s, is the so-called Tra- tragedy of the commons and a lot of our fisheries management has has developed to um to eliminate that problem but i think it it stems from maybe a misunderstanding of all that's behind it because the typical uh way of dealing with it is to privatize um access to to the fishery through uh, uh, uh permit system, often transferable on a market basis. And uh, that's not necessarily the best way to handle a a public good uh, like herring, which are very, very abundant and widespread and and provide value for a whole range of people while they're in the water, uh, not just after they're fished and processed and so forth and and so um uh, so that second tragedy uh, i would call the the tragedy of commodification right which is when you commodify a resource and 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 commercialize it, and and start to measure it in terms of x vessel value and everything else. You tend to become myopic um, on those on those values, and and trying to extract as much as you possibly can uh, for that value, and you neglect the other values which are not as as. Uh, as uh, John Muir said, "Not dollarable, right? He said everything, <laughs> uh, nothing tolerable is safe, and that's still a pretty good maxim uh, to describe what's going on in, in fisheries, uh, as he was talking about forestry in particular. But uh, but that that issue uh, is really the tragedy of of, uh, of commodification, and then um, the third one of, of of monoculture is is really just not looking at the whole system. Right. Uh, so if we, if we really think about how can we have more herring, how can we extract more herring, you know, pretty soon you're going to end up with herring farms or something like that, right? We're going to take over the whole life cycle and genetically grow them or whatever. And, uh, you know, that kind of monocultural approach, uh, has generally not been successful for rebuilding our natural systems, which have a whole host of other values besides food, uh, production or, or, producing dollars. Uh, so, you know, we have to avoid that. And the, the system we characterize as maximum sustained yield tends to focus on that, on those uh, on those, uh, dollarable values and on, you know, maximizing extraction of s- single species fish populations that are of value. And then the last one is a tragedy of, uh, of conviviality is really is what, what happens to uh, a resource like herring, which is, celebrated for its abundance and shared so widely for its abundance, uh, particularly among native people. Um, So much so that almost nobody eats herring eggs alone. You know, in other words, it's not kind of right or proper to be eating herring eggs alone. You always eat them with other people. And I don't know how many times it's been described of people come back and they spread out newspaper on the kitchen table and they put down their, their herring eggs on branches after they've been blanched, it's lightly boiled and and you know everybody comes over and, and you eat and that's that's what we mean by by conviviality and and you know that's a value that is not captured in fisheries economics but it's very very important um to indigenous people and and, and even to some non-indigenous communities that that uh, consume things like herring eggs and so you know that's also um, lost, and and if you're if you reduce the number of people who can participate in the fishery because, you know the eggs the or the herring become less reliable, less accessible, and so forth, you're really you're really impacting um, that conviviality because you're you're relying on on just a very few people who have to work very very hard to even get the the resource out there and distribute it, and that's unfortunately the situation we face now where. There aren't as many harvesters of herring eggs as there used to be because it takes more time. You gotta have a boat, you have to be able to search around and find out where they are. And then uh, to distribute them, you have to usually have some of your own capital. You're gonna go to Alaska Airlines and ship out some 50 pound boxes, you know, to your <laughs> to your friends, your your neighbors upstate, wherever. And uh, and so you know that's a big, a big burden to carry for, for just fewer people who have access to that resource and have increased cost to get it. Um, so that too is a is a tragedy uh, that fits under that conviviality banner.
2: I would only add that um, I know that it, it's hard to draw analogies, but in the spring, if you're in if you're lucky enough to be in Sitka when the herring come in, there's just a special excitement. That happens, and perhaps it's 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 like um, a holiday, like Christmas. You know, people think about the excitement of Christmas and looking forward to it. And our Christmas comes at the same time every year. The herring don't necessarily come exactly the same day. You don't know when specifically they're going to come, but when they come, it's a real celebration, and people are very excited, and they work together to to. To, t- to find the herring, to gather the herring, to process the herring. And so when people get together and eat herring in the spring, there's just this special celebratory seasonal um, feeling that happens. And it's also a time when just like uh, another holiday, like Easter or Christmas or um, Hanukkah or whatever, elders can recall the past and tell stories about those special times, those special days. What was it like when I was young and I did this? Um, and uh, so it's that, that seasonal celebratory spirit is, is very special, what happens in late March, early April in places like Sitka. And then if herring are frozen and they come out for other community celebrations, again, it evokes that special time in the spring. So it's, it's the end of a long winter, it's um, the end of the darkest times during the year, the days are getting longer. I mean, it's just, it's so exciting to be there for spring in, in Southeast Alaska when the herring arrive. So um, that is part of the conviviality part of it as well, I think.
0: We took it all. We brought them to our land, an endless night.
1: In the book, you repeatedly, and you've already alluded to this a little bit, you repeatedly discuss shifting baseline syndrome. Could you elaborate on that for listeners? Yeah, shifting
0: baseline syndrome is something that was identified by the, the fisheries biologist uh, Daniel Pauly um, as, as a kind of uh, amnesia that develops uh, among fisheries managers because you you actually don't have Uh, historical depth of consciousness uh, or of data in some cases to know how much has been lost when you say start your management regime that that gives you data from a certain standpoint and and so um, you know when you read the historical descriptions of of herring in southeast alaska you know people say it used to go for miles and miles that they talk about the sound of herring at night when they would rise to the surface as being like a rainstorm or or a big wind uh rustling uh you know and they all talk about these as being you know phenomena in the past tense right it's not there anymore but because it's not sort of quantified in the way that we quantify herring today where by estimating their biomass, um, you know, in, in any given uh, management area, uh, it's hard to sort of understand just how much has been lost. And so what we tend to do is we we ignore that uh, sort of say more abundant historical baseline. And then we deal with the base, baseline that we can understand through our model, through our data gathering protocol or whatever. And then we compare our Performance uh, against that, uh, so at the commercial fishery level, that's that's what happened. And so the you know the state in its management really starts, as I said, not not till really the 1960s or 1970s even, um, and the reduction era had already depleted um, herring very very significantly prior to that time. Um, and we have to go back and try to re- reconstruct and figure out just how much was lost. And that was actually part of what the, the herring synthesis project was was about. Um, and then some people would say things like, well, it was never that abundant there in the first place. Or they'll say that herring always fluctuate. You know, They go this way and they go that way. Um, but actually in the oral historical record, and I think Madonna can speak to the, to the archeological record, that's not necessarily what we find. Um, and so I'm sure there were fluctuations, but the fluctuations were probably between, you know, what seemed like an infinite amount and, and then, uh, a hell of a hell of a lot. <laughs> you know? So it wasn't between, you know, uh, a lot and not enough, uh, which is what we have now. So, uh, so that baseline uh, has clearly shifted, but we we don't necessarily have a handle on what, just how big the historical abundance was and, or even the distribution for that matter. And so that, I think doing this study gave us a better understanding of that, um, that that's proven to be important. Um, and you see the shifting baseline syndrome and the, the, the best photographs are the, like the Trophy fishermen down on Key West or something. You know, if you get the shots thirty years ago, the fish are about fifty percent bigger than they are, you know, in, in twenty it, maybe ten years ago, and then now they're even smaller. So again, that that the, what we think of as a trophy fish in our photos, you know, from sport fishing has has shifted um, as the baseline has shifted. But we're talking about in our case population spawning population baselines uh, for herring.
2: So, so what we can add from the archaeological record is the the geographic extent of herring abundance, um, which is rather interesting because today we have a herring in Sitka and Craig and maybe a few other places they show up. Um, But if you look at the archaeological record going back Um, well, it goes back 10,000 years. There are herring herring bones that are are over 10,000 years old in some archaeological sites. Not a lot, but there are some. Uh, But uh, if you go back 4,000 years, 2,000 years, you look at the record geographically, and you see that if, if the archaeologists used fine mesh sieves, then Herring are in about 80% of the archeological sites spread out across Southeast Alaska. So where they're somewhat localized today, they were much more geographically abundant, widespread in the past. And so that is um, uh, very significant. And then if we look at uh, Southeast Alaska amid the larger Northwest coast, and I've um, done so with uh, Ian McKechnie who is at the University of Victoria, we compiled records from the Northwest coast more generally beyond Southeast Alaska. And again, if you look at the geographic record, herring are abundant throughout the region. In fact, they, along with salmon, they are the most ubiquitous fish uh, on the Northwest coast, representing in archaeological sites that use sufficiently small screens to find them. Uh, so, uh, and in looking through time, which Ian and I did uh, over time, we did not see fluctuations in abundance. And of course, archaeological sites are not um, year-to-year records. They are, we, we have longer periods of time that are lumped. We don't have the precision that, that you would have uh, with a yearly record. But on the other hand, we just don't see those fluctuations. So as Tom just said, We're talking about superabundance and super, super superabundance being part of the long-term history of this region.
1: So Professor Thornton already mentioned this. Um, In the book, you suggest that policymakers shift from maximum sustainable yield to an ecosystem-based approach. What does that mean?
0: It means uh, embracing the complexity uh, and the uncertainty that we face uh, in in the North Pacific, which is very much affected by climate change, very much affected by development, very much de- de- affected by changes in predator-prey relationships um, with fish like herring. Uh, and so, if you focus only on the single species productivity of that of, of uh, a single species like herring. Um, it, it, it's a, maybe an okay way to do it. I mean, the M- MSY, Maximum Sustainable Yield, as a fisheries paradigm has been heavily indicted by lots of people <laughs> that have p- picked holes in it. And there's a, a wonderful book by uh, Carmel Finley showing th- th- that it in fact has very dubious origins as as a scientific concept, more, more of a political concept to kind of push our way into South American waters and fish there. Uh, once we got refrigeration and could preserve the fish and, br- and bring it back, we sort of t- wanted to convince the, the, the South Americans that that they were underfishing uh, their waters and that this this was you know wasteful and could actually uh, hurt productivity, uh, not to mention economics. Uh, so that, if that sounds dubious, it, it was uh, because it wasn't really based on any evidence. But, but I, I don't want to say that maximum sustained yield isn't that way now, but it it, it really only works if you've got a stable environment. And, you know, uh, to, to, to use a, a broader term, you know, we lived in the Holocene for a long time, right, with certain stability, but now in this era of... Dramatic, even catastrophic climate change, and what we call the Anthropocene—that stability doesn't exist, and we're seeing this in our in our salmon populations and and in other uh, other fisheries. So they're shifting, they're they're adapting or not adapting, and and this is having a profound effect and creating lots of uncertainty. So if you're just going to say, uh, let's take uh, the deposition of eggs that we found last year, and let's use a model based on that and what we see this year in terms of miles of spawn or whatever, and let's gin up a a theoretical biomass for next year. Uh, With all the uncertainty and all the change that's going on, that's become less viable uh, of a model that doesn't predict as well the biomass, they've missed it. By, by miles and miles in certain areas and the fishery wasn't even able to open uh, the commercial fishery and subsistence uh, users were also uh, adversely affected. So the only way to to, to to deal with such a system then is, is to embrace a, an ecosystem-based management approach because then you're looking at a much wider range of factors um, and you may still need to determine a sustainable yield within that but you're, you're doing it in a much more rich and complex um, modeling and data gathering um, that represents the real complexities and dynamism of of the environment you live in so um i don't know why it's not embraced it's it's obviously a cost to shift how you manage anything you know from one system to another but you know all of the signs uh on the msy model that have been used been used in southeast alaska are really that it's not working very well i mean we're down to sitka sound itself. And as I said, they're missing sometimes such that they can't even open the fishery when they predicted, you know, they'd have a harvest of 20,000 tons or whatever. Um, British Columbia is now shifting away from from this paradigm, or at least a more precautionary one. So, uh, you know, it, it it will take investment to do it, but I think we have no choice because um, the MSY model just doesn't seem to work unless it's very, very conservative. Um, and that's not how it's been applied it's in, uh, in Alaska and most of British Columbia and actually the rest of the
1: North Pacific either. You end the book with a series of recommendations. Could you mention just a few of these recommendations?
0: Well, I think one of them was to is to shift to that ecosystem man- management uh, approach. But I think um, more broadly, um, we we talk about valuation and. Um, you know, valuing herring correctly. And, and in order to do that, you really need to understand not just their market value, um, but their value within an ecosystem as a provider of what we call ecosystem services. You know, uh, the fact that they provision uh, lots of other species that we depend on, salmon and native communities would be seals, um, seabirds, things like that. Uh, all of those things are, are important to us, but we don't necessarily value Correctly or at all, uh, herring's contributions to those to those other assets that we that we rely upon or services that we rely upon. So herring are undervalued. So so correcting that valuation, uh, restoration is a, another set of recommendations. Um, and really, I, I think uh, one of the keys to restoration is looking at the indigenous knowledge. Um, uh, the oral historical record and, and the historical record are clear that um, that Tlingit people, at least in southeast Alaska and Haida people in southeast Alaska, have transplanted uh, herring eggs and rebuilt stocks, um, uh, created new herring spawning areas, um, and made them reliable and sustainable through their culti- what we call cultivation techniques and um, and uh, those techniques uh, are not only sustainable for harvesting gathering herring eggs but they're also uh, uh, very potentially useful for trying to restore herring into areas where they've been overfished or have left because of habitat degradation and so forth obviously you've got to you've got to repair the habitat uh, and make it clean again for herring to come back and spawn but again there's, there's evidence for how to do that and things to be careful uh, about in the indigenous knowledge base. So those are two important things. And then, you know, maybe the, the final uh, thing that's important is really to take a systems, systems view of, of herring and uh, not just in terms of ecosystems, but thinking about food systems more generally. Um, You know, uh, we tend not to necessarily reflect on, on, where our food comes from, how, how it's produced and so on. But, you know, again, if you look at herring, it's just full of, of ironies uh, about how, for example, uh, when you take the sacro, you have to kill the herring, which the subsistence fishery doesn't. The subsistence fishery lets the herring spawn and then the, the herring swims away to spawn again. But uh, they're actually, uh, they used to actually take everything but the sacro, the rest of the fish in the commercial fishery and just grind it up and push it back out as waste, um, which probably fed the crabs and the seagulls liked it. But now they're taking some of that, uh, I don't know about all of it, but part portions of it, shipping it to Asia where it's manufactured into, uh, fish feed for, farm salmon so you know maybe it's going to China Vietnam or whatever it's being reprocessed and then coming back maybe to Norway maybe to Chile maybe to British Columbia to feed farm salmon that are competing with wild salmon for (laughs) for herring now but also for the marketplace and that's just crazy and we obviously aren't calculating that carbon footprint um, or even thinking about the the real economics of that from, you know, from the, from the true meaning of economics, which is management of the house, right? Including all, all that we depend on. So I think taking that system's view uh, of that is, uh, is important as well because uh, as uh, uh, one of the uh, distinguished fisheries scientists um, from, from, Peru has pointed out, you know, we should be eating more herring in some ways, uh, but not as a as an oil supplement in a capsule, but actually as the, the whole fish or as the, the eggs that are renewable um, in, in, uh, in the indigenous model, because they're lower on the food chain and uh, you're capturing more of the energy and they can feed more people. And it can be done uh, more sustainably than, say, farming salmon by feeding those those herring to those salmon and all the other inputs, you know, antibiotics and you know, water filtration, all that—that's necessary to keep those farms from, from you know, um, falling into disaster. So I think that systems view is is very important as well.
2: Yeah, it is ironic that the 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 herring are being ground up into fish meal that is feeding carp in China as well, not just salmon um, and pet food. You know it's crazy that our herring from the Pacific Northwest are going to East Asia and feeding domesticated animals. And as as John as as Thomas said, um, promoting herring consumption locally and not exporting it uh, would be a step forward um, because of their nutritional fatty acids. Because of, I mean, it's a wonderful superfood, both the eggs and the and the fish themselves. So. Uh, promoting herring consumption locally, I think is is also a recommendation, but we have many more that you can read in the book.
1: There's so much in this book. You talk about the archaeological record. You talk about cultivation among the Tlingit and Haida of herring. You talk about what people are doing now. You talk about sacro fishing. There is a tradition on the New Books Network that I'd like to uphold, although we only have a few minutes, which is what are you working on now?
0: Well, for me, one of the things I'm working on is uh, adaptation to climate change. So um, that's uh, an, been an area of interest uh, in in my career in the last uh, 15 or 20 years. Um, and it actually comes out of my work on the Northwest Coast, which has always been a dynamic uh, environment, but one which has been inhabited for long periods of time by the same, the same or similar peoples. Uh, and uh, that means that there's a good track record there of, of adaptation. Um, and so, uh, you know, even, even herring eggs themselves, arguably the harvest is an adaptation that people, um, developed to, uh, to have an early spring food before salmon came into, to being and, uh, and transplanting and some of those other cultivation techniques could also be thought of in that, in that way. But I'm, I'm interested in the, you know, globally, we have to kind of adapt to, to environmental change. I mean, that's just an imperative. We can't mitigate it at all at this point. And so what, what do we as anthropologists and students of the, of the long story of, of human development and the diverse story uh, have to contribute to uh, how people adapt to contemporary climate change, particularly in the 21st century and beyond?
2: Well, I'm um, still working with herring bones. Um, I'm working with colleagues at University of Washington and now University of British Columbia, Simon Fraser University, and we are attempting whole genome sequencing of herring bones, uh, which has been done for Atlantic herring, but has so far not been done for Pacific herring to work with the ancient materials. So we're hoping with this, um, we're, we're looking at two sites, one in Sitka Sound and one in, in the vicinity of Craig. And by that comparison geographically, uh, trying to see if we can say more about genetic diversity in the past um, and how things have changed over time. Both sites are pre-contact and so we're, we're gonna be hopefully getting a window into a period of time that we don't know much about. Ideally, we'd like to look at even, um, Alaini Petru at Washington thinks that we can potentially use some new techniques to establish or a comparative population size, which would be very exciting. Um, and the other project I'm working on, um, involves sea otters. And, uh, while I have done some research in Southeast Alaska on, um, uh, people's use of sea otter, Klingit people's use of sea otter, and looking at archaeological collections and trying to address the question whether or not people ate sea otter or if they just used their pelts. And I, I have a publication on that. I'm working with um, um, uh, uh, biologists at the University of New Mexico looking at isotopic data on ancient sea otter diets. Because with the sea otter expansion in Southeast Alaska, there's a conflict between uh, sea otters and 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 commercial fishermen who go for a lot of the same prey. So things like Dungeness crab, for example, make people is a pretty productive, lucrative fishery. But the sea otters love crab. Um, they're also having an impact on some clam populations in some areas. So what we're looking at in ancient times is trying to see sea otter diet in the past and compare it to the future with the idea of providing information that's useful to managers today, to native people today, uh, but also to assess the potential effects of introducing sea otters in places where they haven't been um, repatriated. So for example, Um, Places along the Washington state shoreline and also the Oregon coast are places where sea otters have been locally extirpated since the fur trade. And whether or not people want to reintroduce them is something that we hope um, will be a decision made with data that help people better understand the consequences of reintroducing sea otters into these waters. So uh, those are two of the projects I'm working on at the moment.
1: The book is Herring and People of the North Pacific, published with the University of Washington Press. Professor Thornton, Professor Moss, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Pleasure.
2: Thank you for having us, Adam.